0: All right, at this time, I'd like to dismiss the children to Promised Land, and uh, if you're relatively new to to this fellowship, we want you to know you're certainly welcome to keep the kids with you at this time, but we do have something going on simultaneous to the message that's really designed to disciple the kids in a way that is really helpful and meaningful to them. Uh, We've been in this series entitled Dealing with Danger, and last week when we started, we started out in a place, I don't think it's a place of humility, it's just a place of reality, With this recognition that when it comes to the most dangerous people in our lives, the biggest danger to us is us. That is, the biggest danger to you is you, the biggest danger to me is me. The unfortunate reality is, for every bad decision you've ever made, you were there for that decision 100% of the time. So we need to be very careful to examine ourselves, to look in the mirror, to guard our own hearts. And we talked about how if we fail our hearts, our hearts will will fail us. And so let's just be real honest here as we get started. We're the biggest danger to ourselves. Now, it's not to say that there aren't other dangers out there. As a matter of fact, Jesus does talk about the danger of others. There are out there dangers. And Jesus talks about this in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that he talks about it is sheep... Uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. It's a pretty powerful metaphor. Let's go ahead and read this together. This is over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware, says Christ, because there's danger out there. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus taught that there are people out there that may come across soft and fluffy and inviting and warm and safe. But the reality is they're anything but that. A few verses later, Jesus talks about people who actually could be buying what they're selling, that there are these people that are not only wolves in sheep's clothing, but they, they've been acting the act for so long, they start buying what it is that they're selling. They're, they're deep cover wolves because they've deceived themselves and so in the final analysis jesus says there are going to be some standing before me to say lord lord and he's going to say "I i don't even know you and they're going to be shocked that jesus is going to say you don't even know me because they've become convinced that they do know him when in fact they don't so there are these wolves in sheep's clothing that want to kill you and eat you this is a terrifying thought really it's terrifying on two levels one it's terrifying to think That a person could really think that they're a Christian and not be, that a person could really be so deceiving that they've deceived themselves. There's another terrifying thought here, and that is if we take Jesus seriously, which we should take Jesus seriously, that means that we are likely in the midst of dangerous people all the time. You might even be in the midst of some dangerous people now. And I don't mean to say that you're physically in danger. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cut to the chase with regards to what I've been reading over this last week. I came across this interesting article from the, the Council on Science and Health. And they said, actually, if you're concerned about avoiding homicide, get out of your house. You're safer in a place of worship on a Sunday morning than in your home. So if you wake up in the morning and you're thinking, I'm kind of afraid for my life, come up here early. Make some coffee stay late serve in the nursery i mean seriously the biggest danger according to the bible and what you know from your own experience the biggest danger to you is you but second to that it's not the gun toting psychos in the world it's the it's the wolves in sheep's clothing it's the people who like satan present themselves as angels of light but in reality There's a heart of darkness. There's something going on beneath the surface that is entirely unhealthy. Those are the dangerous people that we really need to watch out for. So in light of that reality that Jesus speaks about, it's wise for us to be concerned, how do I deal with dangerous others? So I got to reading this book this last week entitled Safe People, how to find relationships that are good for you and how to avoid those that are not. And uh, there's this chapter in there. It's, it's written by these Christian psychologists, Henry Townsend, and uh, uh, Henry Cloud and, and John Townsend. They've written some other books. You might be familiar with Boundaries, that whole concept. They write this book, and there's this chapter on unsafe people. I'm going to give you the 11 characteristics of unsafe people. And we could take time to ground all of this in Scripture, but just trust me, these are Scriptural realities about unsafe people that when you are internalizing the Gospel should be disappearing. If if you understand the gospel and the gospel is working itself into your life, you're not going to be unsafe, you're going to be safe. But here's what they say. 11 characteristics of unsafe people. Number 1, unsafe people think they have it all together instead of admitting their weakness. Number 2, unsafe people are religious instead of spiritual. Unsafe people are defensive instead of open to feedback. Unsafe people are self-righteous instead of humble. Unsafe people only apologize instead of changing their behavior. Unsafe people avoid working on their problems instead of dealing with them. Unsafe people demand trust instead of earning it. Unsafe people believe they are perfect instead of admitting their faults. Unsafe people blame others instead of taking responsibility. Unsafe people lie instead of telling the truth. Unsafe people are stagnant instead of growing. Those are the most dangerous people that you're ever going to meet. And you're going to meet them everywhere, and you you might even meet them at church. And so this is kind of sad to think, but the reality with which you live, the reality with which I live, is that there are just some evil, unsafe, harmful, hurtful people out there, and they want to take you down, even though sometimes they don't even consciously know they want to take you down, but, but they do. So how do we deal with unsafe people? Now that question gets layered with another question if you're a believer. Because if you're a believer, here's what you believe about God generally. You at least believe that there's an all-powerful, loving God who is perfectly wise and he knows there are these unsafe people out there in the world. I mean, we've just been warned about this. And so the question is not just how do I live with unsafe people, but why do I have to live with unsafe people? Put a little bit differently, we know that and we don't talk about this a lot, but we actually have some safety measures that are in place that are appropriate. I mean, we've got plainclothes police officers and off-duty firemen, and we've got some deacons that conceal carry, and there are other people that are looking out for your well-being. So in the off chance of a one out of 25 million opportunity that somebody walks in that wants to do you harm there are other people that want to take that harm away and you just kind of contrast that reality which is appropriate with God who's basically said week in week out actually day after day after day you've got a basically a one-in-one chance of wolves and sheep's clothing coming at you I mean how does that even make sense why doesn't God just take these evil people away why do I have to deal with this well those are good questions Fortunately, the Bible gives us powerful, powerful answers, and one of the most powerful places that we're going to find an answer, of course, is going to come from Jesus, and it comes in this parable that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Which, by the way, when Jesus is talking about weeds here, he's not talking about harmless and annoying ragweed or something like that. He's talking about a particular a plant, a, a weed that was essentially poisonous. Um, commonly, this weed is known as darnell, and the, the grain of the darnell is, is poisonous. It could get you drunk in small doses. Kind of interesting, the the Latin word for this is lolium tementulum, and that comes from the Latin word uh, tementulus, which is drunk, So in small amounts, the darnel could actually intoxicate you. In large amounts, it could actually kill you. And so if the darnel is growing next to the wheat, then here's what happens. You've got compromised flour. You can't use it. It's absolutely worthless. In addition to that, most of us know that when you have the weeds growing next to good plants, the weeds tend to thrive more, so they're sucking moisture and nutrition out of the soil, which, of course, is going to be compromising the wheat, Making a long story short, the very presence of the darnel is a threat to the existence and to the thriving of the wheat. Now having said that, let's get back to the story. Jesus is telling the story, verse 27. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did did the weeds come from? Verse 28. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let us let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this story is really very simple. First, you've got the farmer, and the farmer sows good seed, and the wheat begins to grow. You've got this crop growing up. Then the second element is this enemy to the farmer, and the enemy comes and sows bad seed, the darnell. And so what you have in this one field that belongs to the farmer, you've got two crops growing up side by side intertwined with one another. Then the third element is the farmer tells his workers, don't pull the weeds. Here it is. Just be patient. We've got Two crops growing up side by side, one's good, one's bad. Everything's mixed up, everything's confusing right now. Just wait, because there's going to be a proper moment at the very end when everything's going to be separated and the weeds are going to be bundled up and burned and the weeds going to be gathered up, stored in the barns, and there's going to be joy, so just be patient. Okay, that's the essence of the story. Now, if you're thinking, well, that kind of makes sense, I understand it, but I don't understand it fully, well, then you're like the disciples, because the disciples walked with Jesus all the time. They went by wheat fields all the time, and yet they have to ask Jesus, okay, explain. There's got to be more to it than this simple story, and there is. Jesus gives an interpretation or an explanation that presses a little bit deeper, so there's no confusion. Let's pick it up in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. These are people who belong to the king. These are followers of Christ. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. Now, one of the things that this parable communicates so very, very clearly is that at the end of the age, there is going to be this major separation. Everything that causes sin and all who do evil will be removed. So it's thorough. It's complete. It's total. Everything that causes evil, all that do evil, everything is going to be removed. Now... Why? Why does Jesus personally see to it that everything that causes sin and all who do evil is going to be removed? Here's why. Because Jesus cares about his people. Jesus cares about the people who call him king. Jesus is concerned over your suffering and my suffering, and he's going to put an end to suffering, and he cares about justice, and he is going to see justice served. There's going to be balance restored to the universe. He cares That's why he's going to see to this. Because if you think injustice bothers you, injustice bothers him and it's not going to go on forever. See, Jesus wants you to thrive. He wants me to thrive. But as long as there is the presence of things that cause sin and as long as there are those who do evil, we, the wheat in the field, are not going to thrive. We can't. See, here's what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches that the king has come, Jesus, and those of us who call him king are in his kingdom. And we have come under his loving rule because of his gracious provision of his broken body and shed blood. So by his grace, we're brought into the kingdom and we live under the king. And then we go, but things aren't wonderful. Why is it if he's such a good king and this is the perfect kingdom, why is it that we aren't thriving? And it's real simple. Two crops are growing up simultaneously. There's this crop of bad and this crop of good. And until one is removed from the other, things are not going to be as they need to be. Or as I put it up there on the screen, one day the kingdom of God will come, be full on because the kingdom of the evil one will be full gone. Or put a little bit differently, the kingdom that is already here will come in all of its fullness when the kingdom of the evil one is gone in all of its fullness, And when the kingdom of the evil one is gone in all of its fullness, here's what Jesus said is is going to happen. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The day is coming when the dangerous people, literally the seed of the devil, are going to be gone and everyone is going to thrive. Now, this is wonderful. Jesus is, this is cosmic, it's complete, it's total, and it's utter, because he wants you and me to thrive absolutely without reservation. He wants us to know joy in all of its fullness. That day is coming. It's going to be wonderful. But let's not sugarcoat this. The only way people are going to know the fullness of the kingdom, the only way we're going to experience the joy of our perfect king and the perfect kingdom, the only way we're going to experience paradise restored where all is right with the world is when, as Jesus puts it, the Son of Man sends out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let's be honest about this. Some of us here would say that distresses me. That whole doctrine of an eternal separation, that distresses me. Well, guess what? This teaching distresses God. If you say, I'm just distressed over this final judgment, God is on your side. Sometimes people frame this as if I'm over here and I'm distressed and God's not distressed about it. This bothers God more than this bothers you. This is how it's put over in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God is patient. There's just this hopefulness that not one person will be unsaved. But God knows, sadly he knows. That not everyone in his field, and the whole world, is his field. It's all his. He's hopeful that people will come to repentance, but he also knows that not all are going to come to repentance. And so the judgment comes because the evil one is real and his deceptions have to actually be dealt with. And so, too, do the results of his deceptions have to be dealt with. But God is not happy about this because his design for the world wasn't this grand separation. His design for all people is that all would thrive in his world. He didn't put the bad seed there. He just has to deal with the natural consequences, but he's going to put it off as long as he possibly can because if this disturbs you, you need to know, it disturbs God more. Let me explain explain it like this. Uh, I, I watch scary movies most of the time when Gina's not around and she just doesn't like that stuff. And within scary movies, there are, there's this genre of evil children movies. They, they, they may look really good, but they're not. The Bad Seed, The Good Son, The Prodigy, Brightburn, you can go on and on. There's just these evil children movies. And in virtually all of the movies, the parents wait to the very last second to do anything. They are hanging on. One of my favorite movies. It's a it's kind of an independent movie. It came out a few years ago. Hardly anybody saw it. It's this very touching movie, actually, about a, a dad and his daughter, a dad and his zombie daughter, and uh, you know the the uh, the dad is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, so you know it's good, and uh, and the the daughter has been she's she's been bitten. She's gotten the bad zombie seed, so to speak, and in this particular zombie genre or movie. The the zombie apocalypse is kind of under control and the seed is slow growing. It takes several months for a person to be fully zombified, okay? But it's really touching in a please-don't-bite-me sort of a way. At any rate, the dad has this choice. I can either do what everybody's telling me to do or what everybody in our society is supposed to do. If somebody's been zombified, they need to be handed over to the authorities, sent to a quarantine facility, and then the zombies just do what zombies do to each other, and then that's that. Or... I can just pretend my daughter doesn't have this problem. I'm going to hide her, protect her, be with her to the very, very end. You know why? Because I love her, and I'm just holding out hope against hope that something's going to change. And as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking, if the zombie apocalypse comes, what would I do with Shelby? (laughs) And, uh, And in the movie, the dad puts his wife at risk and neighbors at risk and all the rest. And to be honest with you, if Shelby gets zombified, I'm going to hide her. I'm going to protect her. Uh, I'm going to do whatever I can until the very, very final minute. Okay, here's here's the point. There is a point. Here's the point. God is more compassionate than a character played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. God is more compassionate than you are and that I am. You say, why is God waiting to deal with... With the weeds. Why is God waiting to mete out justice? Why? Here's why. Scripture tells us. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather that they turn from their ways and live. So if you say, you know, I'm really distressed about this coming destruction and separation and ultimate judgment. And, you know, burning all the bodies that got the zombie virus and all the rest. Well, you know what? God is more distressed than you are. And and it's a legitimate question that people ask concerning these final things. But let's not do this. Let's not do what I've seen people do sometimes. And that is, from their high theological horoscope, I'm more compassionate than God is. You know what? God sent His only begotten Son so that He could cover the whole field with His blood. What more could you possibly want I can't think of one thing. This reality breaks God's heart to the point that not only was he willing to stay, like in the movie with the daughter to the end, but you know what? If Shelby could bite me and give me the disease so that I could save her life, I would do that. And that's exactly what God did for you and for me. People can either accept it or not. But let's not lay this at God's feet. There's an enemy that came into God's perfect field and sowed some bad seed. And unfortunately, some people have bought what the enemy is selling. And there's consequences that are attached to that. And God hates it. But it's not because he hates anybody. He hates what's happened because he loves everyone. And it breaks his heart what is coming. Now having said that, while it is tragic this idea of, Of a coming final judgment, the reality is it's still a good thing that in the end, at the very, very end, Jesus is going to send forth his angels who will separate the weeds from the wheat. It's a good thing that Jesus is personally going to see to the final judgment. You know why it's such a good thing? Here's why that means we don't have to do that. I don't have to do any judging. You don't have to do any judging. We don't have to do any separating. We don't have to bother with that at all. And that's not just nice to know like one day out there somewhere whenever all this stuff happens. It is of practical benefit to you and to me right now to know there's a coming judgment. Here's why. I want you to think about the toxic weeds that have been a part of your life. I want you to think about those people who have done you wrong and have messed with you. Those those gossips or those betrayers who sought to bring you down. I want you to think about that so-called friend who stabbed you in the back and left you for dead. I want you to think about those people who have abused, hurt, violated, murdered, terrorists. I want you to think about that scammer who tried to take your mom's last scent while she was suffering from dementia. I want you to think about those people who tried to bring your business down through unethical, immoral, maybe even illegal means. I want you to think about the toxic weeds that threaten to undo you. You know what the doctrine of the final judgment means for you and for me? It means I don't need to visit justice on any of those people. And I shouldn't visit justice on any of those people because that's not my job. The doctrine of the final judgment means God cares about your suffering. He will one day put an end to that suffering. And all justice that needs to be dispensed will be dispensed. Every wrong will be made right. That time is coming. You don't have to visit justice on people. I don't need to visit justice on people. That's not our job. Or put it a little bit differently, let me just put this as plainly as I know how to do it. Because King Jesus will personally see to it that dangerous people are dealt with fully, you don't have to become dangerous. The doctrine of the final judgment means there's no room for vengeance for you. It's not like, oh, there's the doctrine of forgiveness over here. Oh, there's the doctrine of uh, God's wrath being poured out over here. They're in competition with one another. No, these are bookends that ought to put you in a position where you don't need to be vengeful. You don't need to take it upon yourself to punish those people. I, i mentioned Miroslav Volf in here several years ago, but... He's just the best illustration I know to, to use. He was a theologian in Croatia for many, many years. And for the longest time, he thought that this whole doctrine of the final judgment and the wrath of God and the anger of God was somehow barbaric and wrong and evil. And then he changed his mind after his country went through a terrible time of war from about 1991 to 1999. A t- terrible atrocities, neighbor against neighbor, countrymen against countrymen. And he later came to see that the doctrine of the wrath of God being ultimately poured out upon humankind was a beautiful doctrine. Here's how he expresses it in his book, Free of Charge. This is what he writes. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of, how, of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. There are things that we should absolutely get angry about because we love. That's why there is a sin called lovelessness. And lovelessness can be expressed in a whole lot of ways. Lovelessness can be expressed in ungodly serenity. Let me give you an example of this. You think about women and children being abused and beaten. That ought to raise your blood pressure. If it does not, then my blood pressure is raised by yours not being raised. It, 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 oh, I'm you know I'm just serene. Caseirosera, whatever it will be will be. I don't care about kids suffering. I don't care about kids starving. I don't care about people being beaten. I don't care about injustice. That's not godly serenity. That's satanic. Here, here's another example of lovelessness. Unreasonable patience. You hear shots go off in your neighbor's home. And you know you ought to call 911, but you think, I'll just roll over, go to sleep, and I'll give a call in the morning. That's terrible. That's lovelessness. If we really thought that God didn't care about justice, that he winked at injustice, and that God wasn't ever going to put a final end to all the violence in this world, we could not worship God, and we could not help but retaliate because somebody's got to do something about this, and it might as well be me. But... If you know that God does care about justice, that he is going to put an end to all of the violence, it changes things. Because if you just thought that God didn't care about any of this, you wouldn't worship God. You would look at God as a calloused, indifferent, you know, cosmic bureaucrat who is only worthy of your loathing. But the Bible doesn't teach that he's the cosmic bureaucrat, the Bible teaches he cares about justice. And he will make things right, which means you don't need to retaliate. You don't need to be vengeful. In fact, you can actually turn things over to him in a way that frees you up to do what it is that Jesus has commanded you to do, which is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can even keep from being sucked into the cycles of violence that swirl all over this world. This is what Jesus taught, and I'm really glad that he did. Jesus says there is an authority that is over you and over all the world, and you can submit to this authority and you can trust in this authority because when you're trusting in this authority, you can be people of peace. Not just bringing peace, but you can, in a godly sense, be a person of peace and at rest. Now, I know that most of us don't want to be patient. That's the command, be patient. Here's what most of us want to do. I think, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misjudging the room. Maybe I'm just projecting onto you. Let me just talk about myself. Here's what I want to do in my fallenness. Deal with the evil. You know, <clears throat> kick them out. Be done with them once and for all. You know what I mean? Let's do it now. Let's take care of it. Let's be forceful. We're done. But that's not my job. And that's not your job either. Now, next week we're going to get to the authorities that God has put in place before the end. It's because there are authorities that God has established in this world, like the government and the military and law enforcement and all the rest. But unless you're serving in some protective capacity in accordance with an authority that you did not grant yourself that was granted to you, unless you're in law enforcement or you're a judge or you're in the military or something like that, you know what your job is? It's real simple. Your job is to love and to serve because when you start taking upon yourself this job that was not given to you, you don't do a very good job of it. Notice what Jesus says in verses 28 and 29. Here's what he says. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. What does Jesus mean by this? Two possibilities. One is, When the weeds and the wheat are young, you can't really tell the difference. You may be thinking you're pulling up weeds, but you're actually pulling up wheat. We have this tendency to judge superficially, to judge foolishly, to judge prematurely, to write people off too quickly. Jesus says, don't do it. You may think you're pulling up weeds, and you're pulling up wheat. Let me put it to you like this. Let's just suppose that, that your job is to pull up weeds. That's your job. First case. You encounter this young man as a teenager. He starts sleeping with his girlfriend and then she gets pregnant and then they've been living together for 15 years and then he leaves her for another woman because he wants to advance his career. He knows if I, don't, if I marry her, it's not going anywhere. But if I marry this other girl, it's going to advance myself. So he leaves the woman who's given him the child. And he's with this other woman to advance himself. But, but it's a very long engagement. And as they're together for two years, he leaves her for another woman. Because she just turns him on more. And in the meantime, he quits going to church. And he joins this terrible cult. And then eventually, he just gives up on God and becomes a terrible skeptic. Now, judge that man. You say, well, I... It looks like a weed to me. If you would pull that weed, you would be pulling prematurely because this person goes on to become Augustine who's one of the most influential Christian writers, thinkers in Christian history. We judge too early. We judge too superficially. And the way you judge others is the way you're going to be judged. Do you really want to be in that position before the final judgment? I don't think so. There's a second thing that Jesus is mentioning or I think insinuating when he says, don't be pulling up the weeds. And that is... If you do actually identify the weeds as weeds and you pull them up, they might be growing so close to the wheat that the wheat and the roots of the wheat are compromised. There's this thing called collateral damage. It's like this, this woman, true story, her name was Marcia, and she said, I was, I was telling my son, be careful pulling those weeds, they're really thick there. If you pull them, you might uproot the flower. But if you uproot the flower, just replant the flower and tell it you're sorry. And, and the boy said, Mom... My job is to weed the plants, not to counsel them. Here's the point. You can't uproot a flower and then be a redeeming influence to the very thing that you brutalized, even if it was unintentional. Even if you identify the weeds as the weeds and you pull them up, you could be hurting the wheat. That is, if you take that job upon yourself as your job. Fortunately, we have a great authority under whom we can rest, someone we can trust, So unless you're a judge or a law enforcement officer or in the military or something like that, here's your job, here's my job, and we can do our job, and it's really singular, to love. To love in a practical way by serving the whole of the field. Here's how Romans puts it, and we'll close with this. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's my job, says God. On the contrary, you got a job, and here's your job. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, there's a part of me that goes, I'm not so sure I really like that. Okay, let the authorities do their jobs. Ernest, you do your job, and that's just love your enemies, feed your enemies if they're hungry. You take care of those people if you don't want to, and you forgive, even though you're not feeling it, and and if it seems like the government's not doing their job or justice hasn't been served, you can't take matters into your own hands. There's something inside of me that's I don't really like that. But here's the thing. you got to really think about this. When, it's come, when it comes to having changed the world, the sword is going to have to fall. Fire's going to have to come. But really, has the sword or fire ever redemptively changed the world? You look back on the times of Death, the sword, war, and there's a time for peace and a time for war. But what's changed the world for the better? The sword or the fire? Or the people who, like Christ, suffered patiently reaching out into their enemies with love? You are not a second-class You're not in a second-class situation if you say, well, all I can really do is be like Jesus and love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. You know, if you are making that your singular job, you know what you're doing? You are redemptively changing the field of which you are a part. You should not just be comfortable with that. You should feel really good about it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and there's a challenge here, but the challenge isn't just in the scripture, or even in the story that, that Jesus tells, the, the, the challenge is in our Lord himself, who lived out the ethic that he proclaims for us to follow, and he didn't just do it as an example, he did it as a savior, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we were ungodly, we were his enemies, and yet, nonetheless, he he traded places. He, he, took the, he took the bad zombie seed and he was put in the ground. He lived the life we should have lived, but then he died the death that we deserve to die so that we would get the life that he deserved. There's never been a God like this who was so willing to trade places. Never been a king like this who would trade places with his subjects. But that's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of king we follow. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable all of us who are followers of the king to follow appropriately. Not just as Christ is our example, but seeing that that's the way he related to us and that's why we're not weeds, we're wheat. Lord, as we we live in this world where violence swirls, not just in terms of physical violence, but the verbal violence, Degradating conversations. Chat rooms gone astray. Twitter feeds that degenerate after two or three back and forths. We just live in a world of decay and violence and suffering and I'm going to get you before you get me. Lord, I just pray that we would follow our Lord and follow Him well on this singular job that's been given to us to redemptively serve as we patiently wait. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who do not yet know the supreme patience of a supremely loving God, I pray, Lord, that they would open their hearts to your love and to your grace, that they would receive the forgiveness of of their sins, the, the, the change of their lives that comes when they have a different sort of Lord, a different sort of King. If there are any here this morning that want to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, I just want to invite you right where you are, right where you're seated. You can just say this to God. God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I've done wrong. I know that I have been one who has visited violence and vengeance on someone else. Maybe not in a physical standpoint, but I've, I've murdered with my words, in my heart, in my thoughts. I I may be one of those people that I know I'm one of those people that needs forgiveness from other people. I have been a toxic weed to other people, maybe even in my own family, maybe even to my own siblings, maybe to my neighbors, maybe even to my friends. I've been that toxic weed, and I I deserve to be rooted out and burned. But I know that there's a better way. I know that Jesus came and He. He died on the cross and rose again so that what he did on my behalf I could receive so that I could get what I don't deserve. And so right now, if you're just thinking about this, you would just say, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short, and I trust Jesus as my Savior. Thank you for loving me even when I didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if if your heart is inclined in that way, if you prayed that prayer I I want to welcome you into the family, into a different sort of kingdom with a different sort of king. I want to encourage you in that relationship. Um, I'll be at the back to talk with you and pray with you about whatever the Lord's laid on your heart. Maybe you just want to pull me aside and we meet up for lunch sometime and just visit a little bit more about the forgiveness that is available through Christ and how you can trust that. I don't know what the Lord is leading you to do or how he's leading you in this moment, but I pray that you'll remain open to God and to his spirit as we continue and then later close in worship. Let's go ahead and stand.